You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay, so these books of the Tanakh are not uh, are are not only um, uh, a, a chronicle of Jewish history, although they are in some ways that, um, but they also um, are sacred canon, they're sacred literature, um, which means that they are a um, a point of of a focus of Jewish study. Um, so much Jewish study. Um, focuses on those first five books, the Torah, um, but it's not uncommon to study um, uh, the books of the prophets and the books of the uh, other writings as well. Um, and in particular, um, uh, we have a um, uh, liturgical cycle for um, reading uh, many of these texts. Not all of them, but many of these texts. Um, Shoot, there's a there's a word in in Christian traditions for what this is called. It's not a liturgical cycle. Lectionary. A lectionary, yeah, a lectionary cycle. There you go, right? Um, so there's a there's a lectionary of, of reading. So what we do is we break up the Torah um, into weekly portions, um, and we read a portion of each uh, of of uh, of in sequence. So we're reading from Genesis through Deuteronomy over the course of the year. Um, and then at uh, a holiday known as Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing with the Torah, we start the um, the cycle over again um, and start from Genesis again. So right now we're um, around uh, chapter uh, 18 of Genesis. That's where we left off this past week. Um so we'll read a portion, several chapters each week. Um, some synagogues, like this one, um, uh, actually read on a three-year cycle uh, the Torah reading. So, uh, so they break up the Torah into three equal parts, um, and they read a third of each weekly portion um, uh, each week. The second year, they read the second third of each weekly portion, and the third year, they read the third third of each weekly portion. Um, so that uh, over the course of three years, you've read the whole Torah. Um, some tr- congregations, although not many, um, do it in a slight do that third thing, but do it in a slightly different way, which is they, um, this is a very rare um, occurrence, and if you find a synagogue that does it this way, report it back to me, because I've actually never seen this in practice, but the Talmud talks about it. So, uh, um, you could read um, uh, a third of the whole Torah every year, so that would mean, like, you read, you know, um, you break up the weekly readings um, into smaller chunks, um, and only read a third of the whole Torah, but in sequence, every year. So, what that means is, like, you Year one, you read from like Genesis through the middle of Exodus, but you read all of it, right? Year two, you read the middle of Exodus through like the middle of, or through like the end of Leviticus, but you read all of that. And year three, you read from Leviticus through Deuteronomy, you read all of that. And I've never actually seen that in practice, so if you see it, uh, point it out to me. But uh, um, congregations that do it the way, the, the second way I described, which is you break it into thirds each year, so I read... Um, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, but only the first third one year, then the second third the second year, and the third third the third year. Um, we call that the triennial reading cycle. Triennial reading cycle. What's the primary reason for doing that? What's the primary reason for doing that? It's because of the length of the readings. Um, so it's, it, it has to do... 
it's 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 pure pragmatism. Um, it's uh, the um, the capability of the people doing the readings and the uh, capacity of the audience assembled to uh, listen to the readings. Uh, and uh, you know the the full reading um, the full reading can take uh, um, uh, depending on who's doing the reading um, can take a, a good bit longer um, than than not. Um, and and especially for a congregation that uh, doesn't um, that the, for whom he. Hebrew is uh, not a native language. Um, uh, it because uh, we chant when we chant the Torah, we chant it in, in Hebrew. Um, it, uh, it can be very challenging um, um, and and, uh, and and disengaging. Although um, what uh, what used to happen in the ancient world, so uh, for most of Jewish history, Jews did not speak Hebrew. That may be a surprise to some people. For most of Jewish history, Jews did not speak Hebrew. For most of Jewish history. Um, Jews spoke Aramaic uh, in the ancient world, and then eventually they spoke Greek, and then whatever language it was that they were in whatever country they were living in. If they were living in uh, European countries, uh, chances are they spoke Yiddish, um, which someone asked, you know, what is Yiddish? Um, uh, where does it come from? I'm not a Yiddish scholar, but basically it's a combination of Hebrew and German. That's what Yiddish is. Um, and uh, if you lived in a Sephardic country, chances are you spoke a language called Ladino, um, which is a combination of Hebrew and Spanish, uh, more or less. Um, and then eventually you live in places like America and things like that where, where you speak uh, um, English. So for most of Jewish history, Jews didn't speak Hebrew as their primary language. Um, uh, and it was reserved largely for uh, sacred literature. Um, which is uh, an interesting thing. Um, uh, and so uh, that was true of congregations in the ancient world too. So what they, the, the ancient way of reading Torah was like this. Um, someone would get up and read from the Hebrew text um, a, set, a verse or a couple of verses and then you would have a live translator uh, translating into Aramaic. In Hebrew it's called a meturgamon which means a translator. Um, and so uh, some of the um, uh, earliest kind of commentaries on the Torah, because all translation is an act of commentary and interpretation in some way. There's no such thing as a literal translation of something, because every translator makes choices about how to translate things, um, and, and uh, no language has precise matching for every single word. Um, so that's true of Hebrew. And so some of the earliest some of the earliest commentaries on the Bible were the Aramaic translations of the Bible. The, the most famous one, the most common one, which you can still find um, in uh, editions of the Bible today, um, is uh, a translation of a guy named Onkelos, um, who was a uh, convert to Judaism um, and uh, took it on himself um, to uh, translate the Bible into what was at that point the vernacular, which was, uh, which was um, uh, Aramaic. Um, an additional very early, you might call it commentary on the Bible, although uh, on the Tanakh, although it's it's some maybe more you could call it maybe more of a translation or another edition is is called the Septuagint. Um, have you ever heard of the Septuagint? What? 70 times, right. Um, so, um, you know why it's called sep the 70 times? Because the number of translations 
Right, right, and uh, in in the ancient world, there was a belief that there were seventy different nations, right? So, um, so it was uh, translated seventy. So, um, the Septuagint is an early Greek translation of the uh, of the Tanakh, um, and uh, you know what's interesting to find in the Septuagint is um, differences uh, between that edition and the um, uh, received tradition of, uh, of of the Tanakh that we have, and there are some of them. Yeah. Question about the third, the third, the third. Sure. So we read a third of every weekly portion. So we're following the normal weekly portion cycle, but only read a third of it every year. So we're reading from Genesis to Deuteronomy, but we're skipping some of each portion each year. So in the first year, we're skipping the second two-thirds of each portion. So we're still getting to where we're supposed to be the following week, uh, but we're, you know, uh, not reading some of it. Um, and the second year, we're not reading the first chunk, reading the second chunk, and then not reading the third chunk, and then skipping to the next portion and just reading the second chunk, right? Um, does that make sense? Um, I understand it, but it makes it really complex to follow the story. Well, yeah. If you're, if you're, uh, you know, if you're, um, if you're playing along at home, it does make it hard to follow the story. Um, but most people don't. I, most people, uh, I guess, one of two things uh, um, don't have such. You know, like there's no um, um, in in a. Uh, tradition where you read from a scroll, right? TV introduced a really interesting thing that like never existed before in history, um, which is like you know previously on Lost, right? Uh, where you could see like what happened last week. But we don't have that in shul. Uh, we don't have that in synagogue. So um, so you know only if you have like a really keen memory do you like really know what happened from one week to the next. Um, uh, you guess, I guess get that. It wasn't really an advent of TV. It was probably an advent of uh, um, uh, codex books, right? These kind of books, right? So you could, like, flip, you know, if you, like, dog-eared one page, you could, like, I forget what happened before, so I'll flip back. Um, so that, so it doesn't work like that in the scroll. Um, uh, um, but also, if you're, you know, a sufficiently motivated person, um, uh, you could do your own reading ahead to make sure that you keep the narrative flow of the story. Um, and one of the uh, jobs I think of um, of someone like me or a teacher of Torah um, in a system like ours is to make sure that that the gaps are filled in. So I try to preach each week on a part of the portion that we haven't read in um, in synagogue. So I'll do often two things. I'll do like an introduction to the Torah portion that talks about the part that we are reading, and then in my sermon that week, I will often, uh, though not always, so don't like, you know, hold me to this, um, uh, but I'll often talk about a part that we didn't read to kind of keep the um, uh, flow. But I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, uh, we're happy to go back to the other system if everybody in the room wants to volunteer to be readers for us. Um, I have yes, yeah, What's the big... Was that? So you can serve dinner instead of lunch. Right, right, right. <laughs> now, well, with, with competent readers, it can go pretty quickly. But uh, um, you know, it's it's just a matter of having the the uh, the talent pool. Is there a vast difference between Hebrew and Aramaic? 
somehow I thought yeah um, fluent to um, yeah there, there's not a vast difference between Hebrew and Aramaic um, Aramaic is kind of like Hebrew Pig Latin um, so uh, uh, so it uses the same alphabet um, often uses the same roots uh, Hebrew is a root language um, much the same way as like you know um, basically every language except for English is root language um, but uh, um, uh, so Aramaic often uses the same roots that Hebrew uses um, although sometimes has letters that it interchanges so for example the, the Hebrew letter duh, dalid is usually a Hold on a second. Thing vice versa. Give me a second. Well, I'll give you another one. Um, so the Hebrew letter uh, uh, tsadi, which is the tz sound, um, is usually the um, uh, in Aramaic is ayin, which is like an o sound um, for some reason. So the Hebrew word aretz, which means land, in Aramaic is ara um, for some reason. Right. Yeah. I, I had a teacher once. Uh, so the Talmud, which is um, uh, um, in addition to the Tanakh, is probably the the most important uh, um, collection of Jewish texts. Um, uh, it really interprets the Tanakh and uh, um, uh, lays out the foundations for Jewish law. That's what the, the Talmud is. Um, and the Talmud is primarily lit, written in Aramaic. And I had a Talmud teacher um, in, uh, in rabbinical school that said um, the, the rabbis of the Talmud were, um, were, like, um, were Hebrew speakers if Hebrew speakers were like toddlers from Boston. Um, so, so that's sort of like if you have a familiarity with Hebrew, like picture how a toddler would speak Hebrew uh, with a Boston accent. Like that's how it, that's how that's what Aramaic is. Yeah. Yeah, so the Aramaic, so very good. So uh, there is Aramaic in the liturgy, and partially that's because um, it was the vernacular um, of uh, much of Jewish history. So people um, had an impulse in their time, as well as in ours, to pray in the language that they understood. Um, and so uh, that's how we end up now with two languages in our prayer service that we don't understand instead of just one. Uh, so there is some of that. And there's also um, some Aramaic in the Tanakh itself. So uh, a good portion of the book of Daniel, for instance, um, is written in Aramaic. Um, you ever heard the expression, the writing on the wall? Right? So it's an allusion to the book of Daniel, where um, a, a finger comes and writes on the wall of uh, um, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Uh, it writes an Aramaic phrase, mene um, mene dekel tarshin or something like that, um, which, uh, which uh, the king has no idea what it means, so he brings in a Jew who speaks Aramaic, Guy named Daniel to come and interpret it, and it means uh, the 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 days of uh, the days of Persia uh, and Babylon have been measured and weighed, or something like that, right? So, that, but it's the, that's the writing on the wall. If you're very superstitious, Stevie Wonder. Okay, um, thank you. Okay, the piano player got it. Okay, so um, um, okay. Uh, that was a little bit of a digression in talking about how uh, the sacred writings fit into the liturgical cycle of Judaism. So we read a portion of Torah from the Torah every week. In uh, um, around 
around the turn of the common era, give or take, um, the rabbis, who were the Jewish leaders of the time, um, instituted what they called a haftarah. Um, so a haftarah, some of you may have heard that term before. Um, haftarah comes from the word uh, which means to exempt. Okay, So for, according to Jewish law, Jews have an obligation to hear the Torah read each week. There were periods of Jewish history where it was forbidden by the outside authorities, like the Romans, to publicly read from the Torah on threat of execution. So the rabbis very cleverly devised a system. They assumed the Romans knew Torah when they heard it, but didn't necessarily know the more obscure uh, Jewish writings. So they said, okay, well, if we pick a piece of text from elsewhere in the tradition, let's say from the Nevi'im, from the, from the prophets, um, that corresponds thematically or linguistically to the portion of Torah that we should have been reading this week, then, it will, then we can read that instead, and it will exempt us of our obligation to read from Torah. So that's why it's called a half Torah. It's something that exempts you from having to read Torah. Of course, just like having the Aramaic prayers, we now do both things. Uh, we read the Torah portion and the half Torah portion. So half Torah doesn't mean, as I assumed when I was growing up, half of the Torah. Okay, <laughs> It's a different word with a different root. Uh, so what we do every uh, Saturday morning is we read a portion from the Torah, uh, and we read a corresponding Haftorah portion, which is always a, a selection from the prophets, uh, usually corresponding thematically or linguistically to what was read in the Torah portion. Very often, uh, the selection from the prophets comes from the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. Those are the three major literary prophets. Sometimes they come from those other books that I was talking about. So um, there's a couple from the book of Samuel, a couple from the book of Kings, um, and a few from um, the 12 minor prophets, uh, which are like uh, Micah, Hosea, Amos, um, uh, um, whatever, Joel, my, um, I said Micah already, but you know, you get Habakkuk is my favorite one, um, right? So uh, they come from there. So we read each week a section from the Torah and a half Torah portion of the prophets. That doesn't include every piece of text from the prophets, but you get a good spattering of it throughout the year. You get a good flavor for what the prophets were all about, and we'll hopefully have a little bit of time at the end to, to look at some text from the prophets. Um, and then on uh, various holidays, we read portions from the Ketuvim, from the Hagiographer. So first of all, not just on holidays, but uh, I, I'll uh, be remiss if I don't mention that a, a very substantial portion of Jewish worship service are selections from the book of Psalms. That's probably not surprising if you've ever looked at the book of Psalms, um, but they're composed as a, uh, as a, um, as a basically a, a prayer book. Um, so that's the book of Psalms. Um, and then uh, corresponding to different holidays, we read various other uh, selections from, uh, from the writing. So I mentioned on Purim, we read from the book of Esther. Um, on Passover, we read uh, from the Song of Songs. For on, uh, on Sukkot, we read uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, on, uh, the, on Tisha B'Av, which is the holiday that commemorates the destruction of the temple, we read from the book of Lamentations. Um, on uh, um, 
um, oh, on uh, Shavuot, which is the holiday that commemorates receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, we read uh, from the book of Ruth. Um, and uh, the one that you don't have on your worksheet here, but I'll mention anyway, um, is on, uh, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year. Um, in the morning, we read a, a, a Haftorah, a selection from the book of Isaiah, but in the afternoon, we read a selection from the, we read the book of Jonah, um, which is the story of the guy in the whale. Um, okay. Questions about any of that? It looks like a lot of people are cold. Are a lot of people yeah. cold? Tell me it gets too hot. Yeah. It's good. Keep you keep you alert. Keep you on your toes. Yes. Okay, good. So parasha is uh, the Hebrew term for that weekly reading from the Torah. And parasha, the Hebrew word, literally means portion. Um, sometimes the same thing is called a sedra, which, which means like a... It, sedra is, is an, actually an Aramaic word uh, for... It means like the order, right? The, um, so I... I neglected um, the books that I have out in front of us. Um, so, as I held up before, this is the Tanakh, right? So this, this is just an English translation, um, and this one here is um, Hebrew and English, um, and I'll, and, uh, I'll pass uh, uh, these around so you can see them. Um, I had upstairs an all-Hebrew one, but I didn't think that that was really going to be all that relevant, um, so here we pass this around. So this is the Tanakh that has all three sections, so that's the whole Hebrew canon, whole Jewish canon in there. And then you have other books around, there's a blue book and a red book, um, but they're actually uh, on some level the same thing. Um, this is called a Chumash. Okay, a Chumash is um, a, a book containing uh, uh, um, always one thing and sometimes other things. So uh, the always one thing it contains is the text of the Torah, the five books of the of the Torah. Chumash is the Hebrew word meaning five or fifth. Um, so it contains the text of the Torah. These both have uh, the Hebrew text and English translation, and both and so the sometimes thing, but both of these books actually have it, are commentary on the, uh, on, on the text of the Torah. Okay, So if you're ever in synagogue on a Shabbat morning, um, uh, usually people uh, who aren't you know, sleeping or talking follow along the Torah reading um, in, in this book, the Chumash. Don't think I don't see you. Okay? Um, uh, and the, the two different editions, I mean, so this is a, an, an older one. This is uh, written by the former chief rabbi, the commentary of I mean, the translation and the commentary of it, the Torah itself was not written by him, uh, but the translation and commentary was written by uh, the former chief rabbi of uh, England uh, uh, named Rabbi Hertz. Uh, and uh, this one, this is why we call it the Hertz Humash, because it's the... Him. Um, and this one is a newer uh, edition um, uh, called the Eitz Chaim. Um, Eitz Chaim is the Hebrew term meaning tree of life, which is uh, um, uh, uh, an allusion to the book of Genesis, but in Jewish tradition um, is taken to be a metaphor for the Torah, which is uh, um, 
which is understood to be kind of a tree of life, right? It's something that uh, continually replenishes and gives life to individual Jews and the Jewish people. So this chumash is called the Eitz Chaim Chumash. This one was uh, uh, published and put out by the conservative movement of Judaism uh, a few years, probably I think like 10 years back now. Um, and it's got uh, so the translation of the Torah that it has is actually the translation of the Tanakh that is being passed around here, um, which is a, um, a translation by a, um, an organization called the Jewish Publication Society, um, and it's got um, um, a, a three different kinds of commentaries in it. It's got uh, what's called the Pshat commentary, which is sort of like um, the textual interpretation. It's got a Drosh commentary, which is uh, a more sort of in-depth sermonic interpretation, and then it's got a commentary that's called Halacha Lema'ase, which means practical Jewish law. Right? So if there's a part of the Torah that has a commandment that has modern-day implications, um, it will kind of pull that out and talk about that at the bottom of the page here. So if you have the red book around, I'll pass this copy around. Um, let's see that. Rabbi, yes. as I was paging through the Tanaka, it occurred to me talking about possibly a tenuous relationship with the concept of time, talking about uh, people begetting other people you know, by this guy begatting this guy when he, you know, a baby when he was 160 years old. Yeah, lots of begats, yeah. So there are lots of begats, and seriously, I mean, talk about people having children when they're, you know, 105, 120. Yeah. So it just sort of calls into question about what, what in fact, was considered, you know, a, a year yeah, it, it does. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's... Um, there's a few different, there's basically two ways of looking at it. Either they had a different concept of, well, there's three ways of looking at it. Either there's, you know, um, uh, uh, people who, ancients uh, uh, had, you know, more miracles in their life than we do. Um, <laughs> right. Um, uh, or uh, they had a different way of counting years than we do. Um, uh, there was a third thing that I was going to say. I can't remember what it is. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I can't remember what but yeah, okay, okay. <clears throat> so, sometimes it sometimes it talks about uh, the the women too. Uh, Sarah, it says, uh, was 127 when she died. Um, for example, right? Uh, yeah, although it doesn't, not always, right? Usually talks about uh, uh, patriarchal lineages, but not always. Um, so that's a good um, segue into this next piece. So, um, you know, what, what was the world of the Bible? Um, and it probably doesn't surprise you uh, to hear that the world of the Bible was. Um, um, a, a very patriarchal society, um, you know, and so the the Torah. I have to take a step back to say that um, uh, Jews, like many people, debate the origins of the Torah. Right? Some Jews believe that the Torah itself, uh, and maybe all of the Tanakh, um, was um, given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai which means to say that it was all written by God um, uh, and therefore is a, uh, a totally pristine, divine, infallible document. 
Um, others believe, uh, and I include myself in those others, uh, that the Torah was written by people, um, probably many people, probably over uh, the course of many, many years. Um, uh, and that the Torah itself and the whole Tanakh really represents a, uh, a, a library of texts, um, uh, some of which has been pieced and, and patched together to resemble a narrative, although may not have ever been originally intended to be an overarching narrative. But editors went uh, through and, and made it look like a narrative, which is how it gets the form it does today. But it may not have ever uh, necessarily uh, been intended to, to be a narrative like that. So if you, um, if you had a trained eye for, uh, for language and you were looking at the original Hebrew, um, you could see uh, substantial differences in uh, language and approach and uh, even sometimes theology, ideology, worldview of, uh, of different sections of the Bible that don't seem to, um, uh, to really mesh with each other upon very close analysis. And in addition to that, you have contradictions um, and you have repetitions um, you have all sorts of things that seem to indicate that this is not the work of a single uh, infallible author. Um, now, I, this is not a class to tell you what to believe, um, but I think that the uh, um, that the uh, uh, scientific and literary evidence is a uh, pretty um, convincing uh, that the that the that the Tanakh in general and the Torah specifically um, is uh, is a composite work of, of many authors. So operating from that theory, okay, that the Torah is a composite work of many authors, it means that um, even if it is, as I believe, um, uh, uh, very powerfully um, uh, a very powerfully inspired text. It's still in some way or another, and depending on your view of this, it may be very largely and it may be very minimally, but in some way um, uh, um, appropriately placed in context. Right? It was written by people who lived in a certain time and place that had maybe were very brilliant and very wise and very compassionate and, uh, and, uh, and very worldly. Um, but maybe also had, you know, their own motivations for writing, maybe had their own agendas, maybe had political agendas, maybe were just influenced, as many writers are, by their time and place. Um, so it's, uh, it, it, that, looking at the Bible that way does a couple things. The first is it helps me, I think, understand it better. Um, and I can, and it also in some ways liberates the text for me. Um, because I can look at some of the, frankly, not so nice things that the Bible says, um, and the Bible does say, the Torah, um, uh, the Tanakh does say some things that um, um, I would not like to be wisdom that guides my life today. Um, and uh, even people who believe that the Torah was written by a single infallible author also tend not to usually live their lives uh, in, in the ways prescribed by the Torah the genocidal pieces, the uh, heavily misogynistic pieces, etc. Oh, there are some that do. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and live their life the way. So for me, it sort of liberates the text and say, okay, um, uh, some of these pieces are very much you know, a product of, of what the ancient world was like. Right? And, um, and uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be an accurate picture of, of the world in which we live um, or the core message of what the Torah was trying to get across. Um, so it helps separate the wheat from the chaff for me um, in, in some ways. It can complicate it, but it, it does help me do that. 
Right. So um, we'll talk about this a little bit. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, and it depends on your approach to the to those sort of things. So I think that um, you know, I I had a I don't know how many of you were here for the panel discussion we had uh, two weeks ago when uh, my installation weekend. But my friend Rabbi Abe Friedman was here from Chicago, um, and he was talking about Jewish prayer. But I think it's true of the of of Jewish practice generally speaking. Um, he said it's uh, um, the um, the longest running clinical trial in human history, <laughs> right? So that's the way I think of the practices of Judaism. I think that um, uh, that I'm I'm very reticent to jettison practices that I've received from my ancestors um, because um, uh, my presumption is that um, they, uh, they, they have a job to get done, and for most of Jewish history, they've done that job. Um, so what, where I would be willing to um, jettison the practice is if on its surface um, it um, presents itself as morally problematic, right? So there are some um, pieces of Judaism that have been crystallized in law that I think on their surface are morally problematic. Um, and I'm not at all uncomfortable about saying that those laws oughtn't apply anymore. This is me, this is just, this is Rabbi Knopf speaking, right? This is not necessarily endorsed by any uh, movement or uh, synagogue or, you know, uh, Jewish body. This is just me speaking. Um, uh, um, there are another class of commandments that may not um, uh, necessarily work for what I imagine their um, initial stated purposes, but aren't morally problematic, and I think that uh, uh, either have uh, beauty, meaning, value, can be or can be sufficiently reinterpreted um, as to have contemporary relevance. Um, and so, I'm not necessarily in favor of tossing out practices that um, that have served. Jewish people for a long time, um, uh, just because the reason they serve Jewish people may not be valid anymore if they can be applied in a way that makes sense for today. Um, and then there's a whole other category of uh, laws that I think you know uh, worked then and work now that I'm not. So that's that's sort of how I deal with that problem. So um, keeping kosher, I think, um, uh, falls into. Um, Probably categories, depending on the law, categories two and three there. Um, uh, I'm not uh, um, uh, of the opinion that they really fall into category one. I, I actually think quite the opposite, that the laws of keeping kosher, to use the example you mentioned, um, uh, really uh, far from uh, presenting you know, morally problematic issues, um, actually uh, inculcate um, a lot of uh, really morally um, beneficial um, uh, um, uh, ways of thinking and practicing. So, um, so that's how I deal with it. So anyway, uh, all of that was really to kind of um, uh, uh, say that um, that what you read in the uh, what you read in the Torah uh, and what you read in the Tanakh um, is not necessarily um, uh, the uh, authoritative snapshot or view of uh, of, of Jewish history. Um, and it turns out that uh, that uh, we don't know a lot about Jewish history before 
um, at least the reign of King David, if not later than that. Um, uh, we, prob- we know that King- there probably was a King David, um, that he probably reigned for more or less the period that the Bible says that he reigned for, uh, over more or less the territory, um, uh, facing more or less the same kind of enemies and battles and that. So King David is more or less a, 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 a pretty much agreed upon fact. But look at your timeline here. Um, so the Israelite kingdom of King David is 1020 BCE, right? That's where really, I mean, that's actually Saul um, is, uh, is 1020 to like 1018, right? King David is the 40 years after that. Um, so that means that um, virtually everything that's spoken about in the Bible uh, or in the Torah, I should say, um, you know, those first five books, um, is really a matter of historical speculation much more than historical fact. Um, even things like um, the exodus from Egypt. Um, scholars debate whether the exodus from Egypt actually happened. Um, so the, the, what, what you read in the, in the, in the Torah um, it's possible to view it as history, although like with any history, um, it's told from a particular vantage point and from a particular point of view. So it's not um, the authoritative picture of the history of the world or even the history of the Jewish people. If all of those events happened, which maybe they did, it, they didn't necessarily happen exactly like they like it's talked about in the in the Torah. Um, and the Torah has a has an objective. So you know it doesn't talk about everything that every Israelite ate for breakfast every morning during the forty years of the wilderness, right? That would be an actual snapshot of what was happening, right? It's telling a story of um, of the relationship between God and the people of Israel, um, and uh, with with an eye toward how that relationship um, is uh, meaningful or relevant for contemporary readers of the text, much more than the figures that it's talking about in the text itself, right? So. I want to, because we spent a lot of time last week talking about this, um, I'm going to put aside the, uh, um, the, the let's call it the, what it says here, the primordial history of the Jewish people, which is everything um, until uh, um, uh, King David. Um, even things like the conquest of the land of Israel, right? So I mentioned before, um, uh, the two books that follow the Torah in the Tanakh are Joshua and Judges. Now, you may have seen this in the reading, um, in the, this reading, um, it talks about Joshua and Judges um, have, it looks like, two very different pictures of how the Israelites conquered the land of Israel. In Joshua, it looks like the Israelites swept through and conquered virtually the entire land, right? Um, they, were, they were a very unified invading army and, and took it. Judges presents a very different kind of picture. It presents a land that's sort of partially uh, conquered and still in the process of being conquered. Uh, periodically, there are charismatic leaders that arise from among the Jewish people um, uh, and uh, help defeat uh, uh, indigenous peoples and other enemies that the Israelites are facing. So, so there's not even consensus necessarily in the Bible about how that early part of Jewish history happened. So we don't know a lot about where the people of Israel came from, what their early history was. Um, we do know that by the Babylonian exile, the Jews who in ancient history weren't even called Jews, 
the term Jew only comes actually around the time of the Babylonian exile. Because uh, remember I mentioned before that there were two kingdoms um, eventually uh, of, uh, of Israelites. There's the kingdom of Israel, which uh, exists in the north of the land of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah, which exists in the south. There were um, 12 tribes of Israel, which means you know 12 kind of... Um, Sort of like you have 50 states in the United States of America today, right? Um, so there were 12 states, 12 tribes of Israel. Um, the Bible presents a picture that those 12 tribes originated in 12 sons of Jacob, and they each had their own large families, whatever. Maybe that's how it happened. But anyway, there were 12 distinct groups that all kind of saw themselves having a shared ancestry, shared language, shared practice, shared culture in a lot of ways. They lived in different geographic areas, but all kind of saw themselves as linked in certain ways. Twelve tribes of Israel. At a certain point, um, uh, ten of those tribes uh, 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 split off and formed their own kingdom in the north. That was called the kingdom of Israel. Um, and two of those tribes, but mainly just one of those tribes, the tribe of Judah, had its own uh, kingdom in the south. Um, in 722, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, um, which is, if you ever heard the term, the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel, mm-hmm. right? So the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel are those, the kingdom of Israel that was destroyed by the Assyrians. Um, no one really knows what happened to those people. I mean, periodically there are like groups that, that pop up to say, you know, I'm this lost tribe, or I'm that lost, or maybe they are. Um, but chances are those lost tribes were lost because um, they basically either were killed or became Assyrian. That's what happened. Um, it's not really such a mystery. Um, uh, the tribe of Judah continued to exist until 586. It's conquered by the Babylonians. Um, the kingdom of Judah, the people of Judah, the Hebrew term for Judah is Yehudim, right? Um, which is now the Hebrew term for Jews, right? So the Babylonians called those people, not Israelites, but Judites, Yehudim. And that's how they identified themselves. That's how they saw themselves. So um, so the people of Israel became the Jews, because that's all there was left, right? The Judites. Um, eventually that term morphs into Jews. So in the ancient history of Israel, before there is a kingdom of Judah and a Babylonian exile, there's not really such a thing as Jews. Okay? I mean, you can trace Jewish history back but it's not really proper to talk about the people that, in that era as being Jews. Jews don't exist until the Babylonian exile. Right? Israelites do. Um, and, uh, and somehow, someway, the, uh, this group of people uh, that uh, called themselves the people of Israel um, end up in, uh, in the land of Canaan or the land of Israel um, and by um, 1000 BCE, give or take, um, they establish a kingdom for themselves, uh, led first by a guy named Saul, probably. I mean, that's what the Tanakh says anyway. Um, but then um, uh, most notably by uh, David and his son Solomon. And King David and Solomon, so David does things like um, establish the capital of, uh, of the kingdom of Israel in Jerusalem. Um, and so that's um, really the beginning of um, the Jewish love affair um, and deep connection to Jerusalem is around 1000 BCE when uh, David conquers Jerusalem and makes it his capital city. Um, uh, and Jerusalem is pretty, uh, is, is situated in, in, in the southern part of the land of Israel, but 
almost at kind of like the dividing line between north and south. It's almost like Washington, D.C. is uh, today. Um, even though it's technically in the south, it's pretty far north compared to the rest of the south. Um, and it's also strategically a very good place in Israel because it's very mountainy. All right? So that's one of the reasons uh, David conquered it. In addition to, uh, depending on your point of view of these things, that uh, it's what God showed to uh, um, Abraham, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and it's been actually um, part of uh, Jewish consciousness for even longer than that. But it's at least... Um, uh, so, a thousand years uh, BCE is about 3,000 years of an association of, of Jews with Jerusalem, so it's a pretty long time. Um, David's son Solomon expands uh, the capital city of Jerusalem and builds their um, uh, a temple, um, which is um, the, the um, after the tabernacle, the portable sanctuary that the Israelites had in the wilderness, um, there was no permanent home for uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the focal point of the tabernacle in the wilderness, um, and uh, uh, no kind of permanent physical uh, manifestation of God's presence, centralized worship space. Um, so Solomon builds a, a, a temple in Jerusalem, um, which becomes um, uh, the, um, the exclusive uh, uh, locus of worship uh, for the uh, nation of Israel, which also becomes a political football, right? Because um, everybody wants the temple in their territory, right? So Judah wants the temple in their territory, obviously. So if you can only have one temple, well, I want it in Ju Judah. Well, I want it in Dan. I want it in um, Ephraim, right? Um, which is one of the reasons that the kingdom splits after Solomon's reign. It splits in two. So it splits, be, there's a split between Solomon's son and Solomon's general. Um, who, and this kind of uh, lends itself to the, the possibility that, that there's something historically inaccurate here because the names are kind of too rhymy uh, to be, you know, it's like very coincidental. So Solomon's son is a guy named Rehoboam, and Solomon's Rehoboam, if you want, uh, and Solomon's general is a guy named Jeroboam, Jeroboam. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, um, and so uh, uh, Jeroboam establishes um, a kingdom in the north with its capital in, in Dan, very far in the north of the land of Israel, and uh, Rehoboam establishes his kingdom in the south um, with uh, the capital remaining in Jerusalem. So the book of Kings chronicles it this way, um, that both nations, both kingdoms, um, uh, were not very good. Um, so, it, so the book of Kings couches it in theological language. They weren't good in, in, insofar as they, they weren't uh, good about exclusively worshiping the God of Israel. Right? They, they devolved into uh, polytheism and idol worship and, and all sorts of other things. Um, if you kind of scratch beneath the surface of that and, and look at the... I mentioned before that the, the other prophets kind of zero in in particular moments of those histories, and it looks like the issue isn't so much... Uh, the, um, uh, the, the failure to worship one God, it's the moral character of, of society broke down, right? So what, the, what Kings describes is they didn't worship God anymore. The prophets kind of define what that means, right? And it's not just, you know, well, you worship one God, you worship two gods. That's not such an important question. The question is the, the worship of one God, the proposition of the Bible is the worship of one God is meant to do things like make a, uh, a, a, a community of brothers and sisters who have 
a, a deep responsibility to each other and fundamentally ought to be equals, right? So there ought to be social justice,、um, and at the very least, not lawlessness and murder running rampant in the streets. There needs to be a system of law and order, a system、um, of, uh, of 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 uh, uh, abiding by. Um, uh, communal norms and practices and customs, and so it seems like、um, uh, very more often than not in the north, but also very often in the south,、um, there was a total breakdown of Israelite society. And eventually, the total breakdown of Israelite society. There was a there's a crumbling from the inside. The prophets talk about this in moral terms, right? God's going to destroy you because、um, you're not doing the right thing, right?、Um, and so, periodically, some prophets say,、um, "You better do the right thing, or God's going to destroy you." Or you've been doing the wrong thing for so long that it doesn't really matter if you change now because God's going to destroy you anyway, right? So, it kind of oscillates between those two messages, but it almost always. It is you're doing the wrong thing.、Um, this is going to be bad for you, right?、Um, so,、uh, so it phrases the kind of crumbling of both north and south in those kind of moral terms, right? God's going to wipe you out if you don't shape up.、Um, but it doesn't take a genius to to put together that if there's a disintegration of society from the inside, societies become vulnerable to outside threats, and that's precisely what happens is first in the north and then in the south.、Uh, But there always, especially in the South, in Judah, was a remnant of people who、uh, were very committed, very dedicated to、um, the laws and practices、um, uh, of their ancestors and the proposition of、um, of, of one God. Those are the people, most likely, that when they were taken into exile in Babylonia, said to themselves. If we don't compile our traditions and write them down in a in a unified way, we're going to lose them. And we have an opportunity to rebuild、uh, Judite Jewish society from the inside and say we're going to start again with a core of people who are really committed to this stuff. We're going to crystallize the practices and the literature, and we're going to、uh, teach it to our children and make sure that they teach it to their children. So you do have an emphasis if you read the Bible with that eye. Right, you can see there's an emphasis of you need to teach this to your children, and make sure that they teach it to their children, and carry it on from generation to generation, and make sure that your society is set up with this as a system of laws and rules. We're, we're running out of time, so I'm not going to take questions at the moment. We can talk after. Um, um, so most scholars think that the that the that the Tanakh. Was largely compiled during that Babylonian exile, when the、um, when the when the priests and the scholars and the royals and the aristocracy of、um, of Israel was taken into exile in Babylonia, and they said, "We have to write this stuff down, or we're going to lose it." Within the、uh, period that we're talking about, and I know we're 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 very short on time. There's really three categories of people that、uh, that we need to know about, okay? And and this is what we'll uh, uh, because when we get to later periods of Jewish history, the power dynamics here are going to change. But there's there's really a there's really a kind of three part power struggle in ancient Israel, and it's reflected in in the in in the Tanakh. You can see this between king, priest, and prophet. Okay, imagine you have in in America you have a balance of powers, right? And if any one of those powers gets too big or strong, the whole system is thrown out of whack, and that happens in, the, in ancient Israel too. So the the king is sort of the judicial power, 
right? Um, the power to make and impose laws, wage wars, things like that. The priests are the religious authority, the religious power. Um, and periodically in Jewish history, there are large power struggles between king and priest because the priests held the keys to God's kingdom in some way, but the king held the purse strings often, right? The priests sometimes wanted the purse strings and were able to get a hold of the purse strings. So this is a very complicated thing. The prophets, on the other hand, were kind of uh, sometimes part of the system, but always kind of, they were like the independent judiciary in a way, right? They were the ones that, um, that uh, the, the term prophet um, is not, you know, usually sometimes when people think of the word prophet, they think it's, it's someone who predicts the future. And that was in some ways the function of the prophets in, in ancient Israel. But the prophets really were kind of like God's mouthpiece, or they purported to be God's mouthpiece. So they were the ones that were um, uh, attempting to speak truth to power, or what they perceived to be truth to power, right? Um, and very often they had a message of um, uh, of uh, um, of morality in the face of immorality, justice in the face of injustice. And they spoke to kings, and they spoke to the people who were following the kings, and they spoke to the priests and the people who were following the priests. So. Um, one of the texts we would have looked at tonight, had, had, had we had time, um, is the Haftorah, the, prof, the prophetic text that we read on, um, on Yom Kippur. Maybe my favorite one, right? And I, it's from Isaiah. And that's a great example. Because Isaiah says to the priests and the people of his time that are kind of following the priests, he says, you think God really cares about your fasting and your sacrifices? Um, that's not what God cares about. What God cares about is um, the fact that on uh, that uh, that that you uh, commit injustices in your business, and that hungry people are left to go hungry in the streets, uh, and that there are naked people freezing in the streets that you don't clothe. That's what God cares about, right? And so that's really the language of the prophets, and it's and the language of the prophets is by and large. The language of, that glosses the whole of the uh, of the Tanakh. Sometimes priests who have a very strong interest in you know um, rigid and fixed uh, religious practices. So you get a lot of that in the Tanakh. But very often the overarching message, the gloss of the tradition, is the gloss of the prophets. The prophets, um, which is why what I would call some modern-day prophets like Martin Luther King Jr. phrase it in this way, and it's a phrase I've used a lot here, and but I love, um, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Because you may have heard that phrase before. Um, right? And so the prophets are likely those people who had a very strong hand in shaping the arc of the Tanakh. And if you look at the arc of the Tanakh, as we talked about last week, talked a little bit about this week, it's trying to create, present a story of the universe that's trying to um, a stretch like a grand cosmic story um, uh, uh, toward uh, an end of, of justice and peace and equality. Right? And so if you look at the, kind of the trajectory and the arc of the Tanakh, that's what it's trying to get to. But that's really the power dynamic in, uh, in, in ancient Israel until the um, uh, exiles, priest, king, and prophet. That power dynamic continues really um, even after the exilic period, although it changes because some of those players change. Um, and then there's a new element introduced into the power dynamic, which is rabbi, which we'll talk about in a few sessions later. 